you do have your Bibles, can we take those and turn to Genesis 5? So this morning we're going to look at Genesis 5 as well as a few verses in Genesis 6. So I want to read the first uh, five verses of Genesis 5, and then we will look at the first eight verses of Genesis 6. So if you have a copy of God's Word, this is what God's Word says. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years. He had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. If you'll jump with me to chapter 6. Chapter 6 and verse 1, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Our series is called Knowing God, and that's the goal. We've been trying to do that through the book of Genesis, not just know about God, but know God as we have walking through this. And as we're studying, we realize that we are living in a post-fall world. By fall, I don't mean the autumn season where the leaves fall. I mean we live after mankind has rebelled against God. We live in a world that is suffering the consequences because of that. That is the world we live in, a world that's actually been alienated from God. And this world that God has made, it is a world of beauty, and it is a world of truth, and it is a world of goodness, and it is a world of life. But it is a world that is broken. It's not just a matter of people occasionally break some of God's rules. More than that, it's that a relationship with God has been broken. So we're going to take time to trace what does it look like to live in a fallen world. What I want to acknowledge today is we're going to take a detour for a few moments. We are going to come back to this passage. But this morning's going to be a little bit differently because it, different because as you read God's word, and we're 
obviously big on people reading God's word for themselves here. But as you read God's word, you encounter some very strange, some very extraordinary, some unusual, some abnormal things in God's word. Don't get me wrong. I mean, there are thousands of things that are clear. But in Genesis 5 and 6, like as I read it again and again this week, even as I read it just a couple seconds ago, I was reminded of the disproportionate number, the disproportionate amount of unusual, strange, abnormal things. And they're challenging to understand, much less to teach. I don't, I don't think the right path, I know the right path is not to, to just avoid them. As if like, you got an uncle you don't want anybody to meet, so you just don't ever have anybody. I mean, it's not... It's not that we can treat God's word. I mean, God gave, these, gave us these things for a reason. At the same time, like they're challenging. So what I thought may be helpful is if I just shared, even personally for a moment, what do I do when I come across some strange things in the Bible, some unusual things? I have been reading the Bible. I, I mean, I've been a Christian as, as long as I can remember, which makes me better than no one, Right? But it does mean over time, as I've read these stories, as I was taught these stories as a kid, and then had to process them as a teenager and then as an adult, and decide and think through as I've opened, you can imagine my occupation, I'm generally opening God's word every single day of my life. So what do I do with the strange elements that are different? So most of my days, I'm running errands, I've got to go to the grocery store, I'm picking up kids, I'm trying to exercise, I'm going about with meetings. Most of my days don't resemble a lot of things that I see in Genesis 5. They're they're just things that are different in Genesis 5 and 6. There are things in Genesis 5 and 6 that are unique. It's different in Scripture. So there are places in Scripture that may be different, but you see them enough. They show up multiple times. So after, after, you know, 75 times, you begin to get an idea of exactly what's going on there. But some of the things in our passage today, I guess it's the only time we see it. So how do we make sense of that? Not only that, but I I find things in Scripture, and probably you've found things as well, that seem to be in tension with other things in Scripture. So you read this Scripture, and it seems to say this and this, and it seems like there is a tension. And listen, God's Word is never meant, you know, intentionally to be illogical or contradictory. That's not the way it's meant to be. But sometimes in our minds, in our capacity, it seems like there's some tension. So what do we do? I don't want to belabor the point, but I do... I do think it may be helpful to just walk through, again, this is just personal. This, your mileage may vary off of anything that I say in the next few minutes here. But this is what helps me when I come to some strange things or some unusual things. I find for me, I have to start with a faith-filled approach. You know, everyone starts somewhere. And you can think you're neutral, but no one's neutral. I mean, there are people that are more gullible more naive, and there are people that are more skeptical, people that are more believing. I mean, it's, we all start somewhere. And when I say a faith-filled approach, what I am saying is that my faith is in what Paul said, that all that is scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. And my faith is in what Jesus said, that mankind doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of God's mouth, it's sustaining and life-giving. And my faith is in what Peter said in that God's words are preserved and kept and we're able to trust them 
and they give us what we need for life and godliness. So there's faith. I want to sit under God's word, not over God's word. I want to accept God's word on its own terms. I want it to have its full authority. I don't want to fall into the place of, what did God really say? Because that is the question of the serpent. Did God really say? Can we really trust what God has said? I want to start with full confidence that God has spoken. We have his words. Listen, that doesn't take away the strangeness, but it acts as somewhat of a counterbalance to me for some of my skepticism that I could naturally have. Along those lines, the more I've waded into the unusual and strange and odd places of Scripture, I've learned to accept the existence of reasonable solutions. Most every difficulty that I've come across, there is some reasonable solution. What what am I saying? I'm saying that smart people have much smarter than, much more intellectual horsepower than I have, have studied these things for centuries, sometimes millennia. So it seems disingenuous when a skeptic poses a question like, nobody's ever thought about that before because, and time and time again, Christians have wrestled through some of these things. They've wrestled through them and and there's answers. Some of them make more sense to me, some make less sense to me, but Often there are reasonable solutions to difficulties. I remember when I was 10 or 11 years old, I, I remember being at the library. No surprise that I would be at the library, but I remember finding a book and pulling it out, and it was like like 500 contradictions in the Bible. I remember pulling that book out, and I began to like, what is this, 500? And I opened it up, and I'll tell you, so many of the contradictions that were laid out there were were so small and not even contradictions that I found the whole book began to be a little bit shaky. Like if you're presenting 95% of yours as contradictions when, frankly, those can be resolved, I, I don't know that I, I can count on all the skepticism there. There are often really good possibilities and solutions even when there's complexity. I can begin to see lines of thinking so that I don't need to dismantle or deconstruct my faith just because it's hard. When I get to some strange things, I, I know I have my biases. I realize that. I also realize Christians have worked on these things. I want to be open to there at least being an answer. Another thing that helps me is when I see the enduring nature of Scripture. So, yeah, no surprise, the text of Genesis is very, very old. Like even into the thousands of years old written a long time ago. So with that gap between us and them, then there's obviously going to be a difference in the way things are expressed, recorded, told, emphasized. I mean, language is different as well as culture is different. And I, I want to close that gap. That's, that's my desire. When I read, I don't want to just leave a large gap there. I want to close that gap of my understanding But I have to tell you, I mean, that takes work because of the enduring quality, because this wasn't written yesterday. It takes some work. It's much easier for me to to watch some sort of 30-second clip of something that makes me laugh or something I find interesting. That's much, much easier for me. I I can easily go through a five-step 
blog posts that, you know, and just five easy steps. Here's what you do about what, I mean, those things are easy to digest. This, on the other hand, is not so easy sometimes. But actually, that makes me lean in more rather than less. When I realize, okay, so think about it. People from all different continents for a couple thousand years have been reading the New Testament longer for the Old Testament and have found wisdom here. Again, I'm not saying that like even the clouds part and everything becomes clear to me. It just is helpful to know there's an enduring quality here. It's, it's durable. People find words that give life here, which certainly means I should come with a humble posture. When I don't understand everything, it is a good reminder that the world might have more dimensions than I might see right now. There is mystery. Not everything am I going to be able to just observe and repeat. There are mysterious qualities. I want to recognize that. And frankly, when I think of love and when I think of grief and when I think of patience, it's not as if with any of those things we submit them to a modern scientific method. And frankly, poems aren't written to solve calculus problems. There are different things. There's a humility that we come with recognizing in the Bible there are spiritual dimensions and emotional dimensions and historical dimensions and internal elements and they're speaking on different planes and it's often unwise. It's, it's often unwise to try to press scripture to demand it to answer this question that I have rather than taking it on its own terms. I mean, you can't make scripture do something it wasn't meant to do, so I have to come humble, ready to listen, even when it seems strange. So what, what is Scripture meant to do? That's where it's so critical that we remember the main thing, where we focus on the main thing. And I don't mean to be cliche there, because when I say the main thing, I am talking about the good news, the gospel, of what God has done for us in Jesus. That is the main thing, and that is unmistakably clear in Scripture. There are lots of parts that I might scratch my head. I might have four theories. I might have a hundred theories on things. But the clear main thing of Scripture is God's loving determination through Jesus to rescue people, to restore a world that has fallen and broken. That is the main thing. So let the main thing remain the main thing. Let the main thing of the life, the perfect life of Jesus. Like that's the main thing. The cross of Jesus, the sacrificial death of Jesus, that's the main thing. The resurrection, the powerful, victorious resurrection of Jesus, that's the main thing. The ascension of Jesus to heaven where he is at the Father's right hand, that's the main thing. The sending of the Holy Spirit to indwell us, that's the main thing. The promise of Jesus to return again. That's the main thing. Those things are so clearly taught in Scripture. And this, this is why that helps me. If I have a limited amount of time and energy, which I do, I don't want to use it all up on things that aren't the priority. So again, this is, these are the kinds of things that help me. That's not all of them, but these are the kinds of things that help me. And I don't pretend 
And you may have your own questions and you may have your own skepticism. And I don't pretend like, well, now, because I've just put up a list, I can spike the football and smile for the camera and case closed on any problem that you may ever run across. I don't think it's that simple. I know it's not that simple. But this surely helps me when I approach complicated things. So I set the table in that way because we're going to go into some of those complicated things. We're going to look at them. And if I had a couple categories as we approach these things, we are going to look at some things that are unusual. So there are some things that are unusual things in Scripture. But just as much as I want to highlight the unusual things, I also want you to see clearly who God is because I think there's plenty of that in Genesis 5 and 6. So we're going to look at unusual things and then, God willing, we'll see clearly who he is if we could put things into those categories. So if I start with one of the unusual things in Genesis 5.5, it tells us that Adam lived 930 years. Methuselah gets the top prize for 969. Jared finishes a close second at 962. The ages of individuals in Genesis 5 is very, very unusual. It's different from what we experience. I heard about someone the other day having like approaching 100. And that's amazing. Like, that's kind of our benchmark, right? That's, the culture goes, my goodness, that, that is amazing. The culture doesn't go 800. Like, I mean, but Genesis 5, look at the, look at the dates. I mean, just track with it. People are regularly saying they live 800 and 900 years. That's the norm. Our norm seems very, very different. What's also challenging is there's no other genealogy where you go and you find all these uh, numbers of years like with the ages this high. You don't see it anywhere else. Again, I, I think there's some answers, different scholars suppose solutions. Sometimes it's a different calendar, different way of measuring time compared to ancient literature. There's other ancient literature written maybe around the same time as Genesis, and it's like people live 27,000 years or something uh, like that. So I recognize this is also pre-flood. So, I mean, there, there's several different things that we could go to to explain explain exactly what's going on. We realize the deteriorating impacts of sin over time. I mean, there's lots of different ways we could go at that, but I just want to acknowledge, like, this is unusual, and as odd as it is to process someone living 900 years, I do find Genesis teaching us something very, very clearly about God, and in the midst of all these ages of individuals, you actually find God keeping his promises. So if we're confused by the number of years. What God promised in Genesis 2 is that Eve, if Eve took or Adam took from the fruit and ate it, if they took that fruit, they they would surely die. If you look at Genesis 5, the most common words in Genesis 5 are, and he died. It lists person after person and says, and he died. Adam died, Seth died, Enosh died, Kenan died. In Genesis 5, actually, everybody dies except for Enoch and Noah. Noah dies later, and Enoch we'll talk about it in a moment. But God promised it's appointed to humans once to die. Image bears taste death. It actually feels normal in some ways and so unnatural in so many others. I drove by a cemetery yesterday. I don't know if it's just the amount of times, the amount of funerals that I've done, the amount of times that I've 
gotten in a car after a funeral service. But there is something that hits me as I drive by a cemetery and realize image bearers face that, and it's painful, and it's awful, and it's lost, and it's separating. And some of you this morning thought about someone who passed away 10 years ago, five years ago, five months ago, and it hurt, and it stings. And God said, because of sin, death enters the world. But there's more than that. I mean, it's not just promises of negative things. It's also, God had promised in Genesis 3 that he would send an offspring of the woman that would defeat the offspring of the serpent. And what I find in Genesis 5 is a list of descendants. And it's interesting the way the list goes because it'll, it'll mention a descendant. It'll say they, they fathered sons and daughters, but it will only pick one of the sons and trace the next line to them. It won't mention any of the other names of the other sons and daughters. It'll pick one, and then it'll pick another one, and then it will pick another one. And then it will pick another one. It is as if God is reminding us. There is a line. There is an offspring from the woman that will crush the serpent's head. And you, you trace this in other places in Scripture. There's a list of names. And it's Abraham. And it's Isaac. And it's Jacob. And then it comes to David. And even in Matthew 1, Luke 3, you have another list of names. One descendant at a time. And they end in Jesus. God not only kept the promise of death entering into the world, but he also is keeping the promise of someone's coming that's going to crush the serpent and deal with all the evil in the world. God is speaking. God is signaling. I keep my promises, which means a whole lot to me when I know the promise that God is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. When I hear the promise of Jesus that I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, I'm with you always, even into the end of the age as you make disciples, I'm with you. As I, I know the promise that God doesn't clear the guilty, but shows steadfast love to thousands of generations. I mean, I hear those promises and I hear loud and clear, God keeps his promises. So ages of individuals, but don't miss the fact that God is telling us, signaling us, he is keeping his promises. Can we keep digging? If you skip down to verse 21 of Genesis 5, you'll encounter one of those descendants of Adam. And it says in verse 21, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch only said about Enoch here that he walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And then notice verse 24, Enoch walked with God and he was not. For God took him. This description of Enoch is different. It's, it's odd. It's strange in that no other person, I mean, not since Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden have, has anybody walked with God. There's something about the communion and intimacy. I mean, numbers often do mean something in Scripture. So the fact that Enoch is the seventh descendant, a number of completion, a number of perfection, that stands out to me. Probably is meant to tell us something there says he walked with God. There's intimacy with God. But then it says he wasn't. I mean, all of us, even the English, cries out like, he wasn't what? He, no, he just, he was not. He disappeared. I mean, the d- disappearance is described simply, but it's strange. Like, okay, he was and then he didn't exist. And then the explanation for that is, yeah, God took him. Which also just seems, again, like, well, it doesn't say that about anybody else. 
You don't read anything quite like this. And yet we do know God is sovereign over life and death and has control over those things, can bring the dead back to life. I mean, we recognize that. It's just, it's different. There's mystery there. Just an economy of words. But you also read a, a little bit more of a description in another descendant. So there's two descendants that get a little bit more of a description. One is Enoch and the other is Lamech. Look at verse 28. It says, when Lamech lived 182 years, he fathered a son. And he called his name Noah. So this is something a little bit more personal than anything else. And he called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed this one. This one will bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. You can just feel it. I mean, don't you hear it? I mean, this is, imagine dad and mom longing for something good to come, weary and tired, tired of the pain, tired of the, just the futility that life brings. And they say, could this one be the one that brings relief? We'll talk about Noah in coming weeks. I was just here in Lamech, uh, such a desire, such a hope that this one will be the relief. And in this, I see God actually sustaining that hope. God sustaining hope. We need relief. We need help. And maybe you need that reminder today because it may be you're just emotionally out of gas when it comes to hope. Because you feel like this world is just hard. It presses in so much. You feel crushed by life. You don't see exactly what God is doing. And maybe, kind of maybe you feel like Lamech a little bit. Like, will there be, be some relief And God sustains that hope in the midst of years and years and years of, God, what are you doing? I don't know that it gets more unusual than Genesis 6. I mean, frankly, in the book of Genesis, I think this is the most unusual part of it. It says in verse 1 that, and I read this a moment ago, but just reminding you, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, it says the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord says, my spirit is not going to abide. Some translations say strive with man forever for he is flesh. His days will be 120 years. Verse 4, it brings up another group. The Nephilim were on the earth or some translations say the giants were on the earth in that day. And also afterward, sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. So you got lots of questions. I've got lots of questions. Who are the sons of God? They took daughters of man. Who exactly are they? Who are the Nephilim? It is interesting to me that it says these sons of God saw, and they, the, the women, they were attractive, these daughters of man, and they took. It's the same words that Eve saw the fruit, was attracted to as pleasant to the eyes, and took it. And it's certainly signaling this is not a, there, there's like a conflict with God where he says, my spirit isn't going to strive. The Nephilim are connected, like who are these giants? Who are these great ones, mighty men who have a name? You start digging very far in this and even compare it with a few other scriptures and you, you, you actually end up with more questions rather than less. So, so what exactly is being talked about? There are plenty of theories. And you could spend a long time looking at it. 
Some would be the sons of God, think the sons of God are just the godly line, Seth's descendants. Some would see them, it's like, no, it's like straight up demons, angelic, fallen angels came there, that's who these sons of God were. Some would say, no, these are just like mighty giants, much like Goliath was a giant, or there were giants in the land of Canaan when the spies went to explore. Others make some sort of combination. I'm pretty convinced by that this could be demon-possessed, like kings and tyrants who bring just all sorts of perversion to the world. Whatever, and and each, each one of those theories has strengths and weaknesses. However you look at it, though, it does end in verse 5 with Scripture saying that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What it does tell you is as complicated as sons of God and Nephilim are with all of our theories and all, well, it could be this, maybe not that. It does tell us that whatever is going on, God sees the wickedness. God sees the, the world spiraling out of control as a kid. I'm sure you were much like me. You think you get away with things. You think your parents don't see things. You have a substitute teacher and you think they're not, they're not paying attention. You can get away with this. And the, and the facts are no one does that with God. God sees it all. God sees the wickedness, the universal wickedness. The wickedness was great. The personal wickedness, individuals made that choice. The internal wickedness, every even intention and thought of the heart was evil continually. It does strike me, though, that even in this, it's all this wickedness, there's still someone like Enoch who walked with God, and there still was someone like Lamech naming his son Noah, longing for relief. And I just, I had to take that as a parent. This week, uh, as a parent, Sean and I of three kids, wanting them to walk with Jesus, realizing this is a world that isn't really often conducive to walking with Jesus, and yet realizing that even in the midst of such a wicked world described, there still was Enoch, and there still was Lamech, and there was still Noah, and God was still at work. And he was at work for Lamech's kid, and he will be at work for Ogletown for our kids. God sees the wickedness. So much so that it says in verse 6 that the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. I mean, these are fairly unique words in Scripture. It's not, not the only time they're used, but they're not used often. It grieved him to his heart. So the Lord says, I will blot out man whom I've created. For I am sorry that I made them. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. You're not going to read in Scripture often the language of God regretting, God regretting something. Like, you're not going to read that. And whenever we take emotions and attribute them to God, we have to be careful. Like, we can't just import all of our, the complexity of our emotions onto God because God is not like us. God's emotions are different. You and I, we, we regret. We regret things. We even, have, we even grieve when we do what is wrong. God doesn't do wrong. So whatever grief or regret he has is not that. We, we regret when things are out of our control. We regret that they happen, but things are never out of God's control. We regret and grieve when things are just bad and difficult and pretty miserable. You and I, our complex set of emotions with all the limits, we don't see everything and we certainly don't know the future. 
But God is in control. He knows the future. So what does it mean when it says he regrets and he grieves? I, I think this at least means is God is communicating very clearly that he is, he is not distant. He, is, he cares about what's going on. He is invested in this world. He's invested in what's going on. So he's not the clockwinder that just started it all and says good luck with it. But when he sees sin, when he sees a world spiraling out of control, it grieves him. Which also means very clearly, whatever it means that God regrets, it, it tells us that God does act in judgment. Clearly he acts in judgment. The guilty cannot be excused. God's deeply invested in this world, deeply grieved by sin. And so he judges. And this is where it gets a little tricky. Because if, if you ask people about Christians, most people will say Christians are too judgmental. They're too judgmental. I think most of the time I'd have to say, I think you're right, I think we are. I think it's so often the case. We're way too judgmental. But that doesn't change the fact at all that we're entrusted with a message that says God does judge sin. So yes, we should be less judgmental, but God judges sin. There's a theme that through Scripture that things like rape and abuse and lying and cheating and sexual sin and racism and pride and judgmentalism and violence and a bad attitude and greed and gossip and stealing and slander, all those have to be judged. There is no escape. We, you and I wouldn't want evil to go unchecked. Even though we feel like, of course, Frank, I'm better than most people I know. Or at least I'm you know, in the top, top 50%, surely. When we read Scripture, what we're reminded is that our own sins, some of which I, I just named for us, many of which we could name if we collectively started writing them down, that warrants God's judgment. And all that is not good news, except for the fact that God doesn't only act in judgment, God also acts in grace. God acts in judgment, but he also acts in grace, which it tells us in verse 8 of Genesis 6, Noah found favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah didn't serve it. He couldn't earn it. And God came to rescue Noah and his family. And God still moves toward us. Jesus gave his life away on the cross for sinners. Yes, God acts in judgment, but he also acts in grace. And grace, if it's anything, it's personal. It's always personal. Grace isn't dispensed by some artificial intelligence. That wouldn't be grace, that'd be luck, or just you programmed it a certain way. But grace always comes through a person. God loving the world in this way that he gave his one and only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have eternal life. That's grace. You know, as I prepared and studied, I mean, there's so many questions. I could answer one and there'd be five more, that, five more legitimate questions you might have. 
So I'm not sure it ties all up, but I have prayed that some things would be crystal clear, and that is I have prayed that you would believe that God is working out a plan in this world, that we do have hope, and God is sustaining that hope generation after generation. Even though we do look at the world and we recognize it as a wicked place, it is a difficult place. It's a difficult place to be a Christian still. If Enoch could walk with God, if God could raise up a Noah, then God can certainly work in our lives in a difficult time. But just as we recognize judgment one day comes for sin and Noah is a reminder of God's grace, and what I have prayed for deeply is that you would know God shows favor. He still does. He still does. And you can turn to him. You can turn to him and look to Jesus who took our judgment receive the grace that he offers. I mean, it would make my day if there was just a mass turning, and I, and I probably would never know because I can't read your heart, but if there was a massive turning to the Lord that says, I'm humbly at your feet and I need your grace, I'm going to pray for that. I'm going to pray for you that you would experience God's grace in a very, very real way that would come alive in your heart today. Let me do that right now. Father, thank you for this reminder from your word. I ask uh, through the work of your son, your spirit would take your word and make grace come alive for the person that thinks they're far too gone. Like there is no hope. I pray that you would change their thinking. Confront them with your love. I pray for our church to be a community of grace where we live in a world where it does seem like the thoughts and intentions of people's hearts are evil continually, and we see even some of that in our own lives. So I pray that you would come rescue and give grace. We don't deserve it. We haven't earned it. But we do come to your throne, and we praise you for who you are and what you've done. We recognize your holiness. So hear our hearts as we pray to you. I pray you turn hearts toward you. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.